Bless you for coming. I mean, it is June. And it's the nut house season when absolutely everything wind up is happening. So thanks for coming to Blueprints Wind Up. And um, just so you know, this is our last Blueprints meeting for this part. Um, we will be taking July and August off, and then we'll be meeting again for September, October, and November. So our next Blueprints um, evening will be September 11th. And so in anticipation of that, I'm going to send out the snack thing. We don't expect you to remember that you signed up for a snack. Wendy, can I get you to take this and pass it around? You women are just amazing. The snacks that we have um, munched on every every Blueprints night has been amazing and makes everybody really happy, I know. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, Sylvia will definitely be emailing you before before the Blueprints Night in September to remind you that you've signed up. So thank you for that. Um, please remember that we will be Skyping Carolyn Custis James in the fall. Um, not really sure exactly what time that will be, uh, but that is a definitely definite thing that's going to happen. There's um, pieces of paper and pens there in the paw. If you have any questions that you want to put into, um, just just text us or let us know what questions that you might have for the um, Carolyn James as well. So tonight, we get to talk about Esther. You will no doubt be very familiar with the Miss America beauty pageants. How many of you have ever watched a Miss America beauty pageant? Some have not, especially in this section. I think when I was a kid, I used to watch them. I read up on them. I was surprised to learn that they have been going since 1921. That is nearly 100 years. This thing just won't go away. I'm not a huge fan. But anyway, 1945 was a very interesting year for the Miss America beauty pageants because it was the first post-war Miss America beauty pageant, and it was post-Holocaust, um, it was in the aftermath, and a woman named, a young lady named Bess Meyerson won the very coveted title, um, but it was interesting because she was Jewish, and she was the first ever Jewish woman to win Miss America Beauty Pageant, and it was the year that the war ended. So she was kind of like this beacon of hope to Jews all over the world because she was crowned this beauty queen for such a time as that. And it was quite an extraordinary event. But there was another very extraordinary thing about the 1945 Miss America beauty pageant. And that is, um, if you actually scroll down the names, there were 41 states represented in that um, particular beauty pageant that year. All of them were from the United States of America except for one entry. And it was a young woman from Canada. Now, I don't know how that happened or why, but apparently sometimes in those early years, they allowed Canadians, I guess, to be part of it. But this young woman, um, her name was Miss Georgina Elizabeth Patterson, and she was Miss Prince George. So I'm going to ask um, Samantha if we could just have that first slide. Prince George, right? I know. Could have been Elizabeth Frank, but it wasn't. So there is Miss Georgina Elizabeth Patterson, Miss Prince George. She won the coveted title. And let's have the next one. There she is in her bathing suit. How pretty is she? Okay, she's in the Miss America beauty pageant from Prince George. So from Miss Prince George, she won the coveted title of Miss Northern British Columbia. So next slide. There she is, Miss Northern BC. Yeah, right? She's a babe. And um, so let's have the next one. She did not win. You can see she's got both her sashes there, Miss Prince George and then Miss Northern BC over top of that. She didn't win Miss America because Beth, Beth Meyerson did. She won Miss Congeniality because Canadians are nice. <laughs> and so she won Miss Congeniality. She was lovely. Everybody just loved her. And uh, let's have the final slide. There, uh, that She's in the parade there. That is in Atlantic City. And there she is in a big seashell with some mermaids waving Miss Northern British Columbia, ladies. Do you know who that woman is? 
She is the grandmother of my children, the great-grandmother of little Jack, and Ron McLean's mother. I'm not even kidding you. Isn't that cool? Yeah. So we have a very small little identification with beauty pageants. Very, very small. And for that reason, also with the great big kahuna beauty pageant found in the book of Esther. Uh, where, interestingly enough, another Jewish girl made history for the very first time, became a queen. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So the story is set in the kingdom of Persia where King Ahasuerus, who was also known as King Xerxes, ruled the great empire, which consisted of 127 um, provinces that went all the way from India to the Sudan from 486 to 465 BC. Now, important piece of history. 100 years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and all the Jews were exiled and sent into Babylon and Persian and the Persian Empire. And then later, under King Cyrus, the Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland. So this was a great big deal. This was a huge deal. There were three separate immigrations where these Jews were allowed and encouraged to go back. Not only were they encouraged by King Cyrus, they were encouraged by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, the two big kahuna prophets at the time. In fact, these prophets were telling them they had to go back. And so the law was clear and the Lord was speaking through these people that they would return. But there were many who did not. These Jews stayed in Babylon or Persia because they had become comfortable, used to the convenient life there. And it would have been kind of hard going back to a destroyed place. And so they opted to stay. It was hard to think of starting over again. The two main characters in the story of the book of Esther, Mordecai and Esther, were among the Jews who chose not to go back to the promised land. They chose to stay. And right there is a tiny little clue into these two people, which we'll unpack a little bit. The book of Esther is a wonderful complement to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were both prophets. These two books depict godly Jews who return from Babylon, who return from Persia under divinely appointed leaders. But the book of Esther depicts the Jews who did not. It's a very interesting thing. The focus of the book is on the Jews that God had instructed to return, but they actually disobeyed. The overarching purpose of the book seems to be a demonstration of God's sovereign love and providential care of his people in spite of their disobedience because he loved them. It's interesting to note that God's name, I don't know if you read the book of Esther or if you just read the chapter on the book of Esther, but the the word God never shows up once in the entire book. How strange is that? There's never any talk about the law or, or religious, um, the Jewish customs of the day. It seems to suggest that there wasn't much of a culture left amongst the Jews in Persia. There was only small reference to the fact that some of the Jews maintained some religious habits. And so the spiritual cr- climate amongst the Persian Jews, including Mordecai and Esther, was actually kind of cool. They were cultural Jews who had imbibed the culture of Persia and even taken on Persian names. They had successfully camouflaged themselves and blended in. Now, for any of you who are from immigrant families, this is pretty standard. And you'll probably all know by now that I'm Dutch. My parents were both Dutch, Dutch, Dutch for I don't know how many generations back. No one really knows. So my parents came to Canada. I'm the first generation Canadian. Well, guess what the first thing they did was? They dumped the Dutch names. Technically, I should have been Geertruida. I should have been. And my sister should have been Femmeke. Because those were the names that were being passed down to all the women. But that got cut off when we came to Canada. And my mother chose Judy and Mary. 
not a vestige of Dutch in there. So, and unlike my father, who literally, legit, had worn Dutch wooden shoes, my sister and I wore leather shoes. And there was a very deliberate blending of us into the Canadian culture. Um, I can remember one day, actually, in a dance class, saying that I, telling the, my girlfriends that I had hurt my elbow. Well, that's how you say it in Dutch. I didn't know you said it, elbow in, in Canadian. Um, and they just laughed at me. And I remember being so mortified. I thought, I have got to get rid of every last scrap of Dutch because it was leaking out at times. And so there was this pressure not to be Dutch. And other than our extreme height, no one suspected that we were Dutch. So this seems to have been the case with Esther and Mordecai, both of whom who took on Persian pagan names and probably had lost their accents too. And I don't know about you, but when I read this book before, I had a different grid than when I read it this time. Because I had completely romanticized it. It's funny because I was talking to two women before this meeting. And one of them said, I read that chapter in Carolyn Custis James' book and I was just blown away. And then the other girl said, yeah, well, that just, just totally blackened King Esther. Because we have this grid on her of what we thought she would be like. The positive impact that they ultimately had colors our view of them in the beginning of the book. Carolyn James sets the record straight and she's, and reading a lot of the commentaries on this confirmed this idea because I, I read about this in Lost Women of the Bible. I thought, really? I, I never read Esther like that. Certainly when I used to teach it in Sunday school, I never taught it like that. So I just began to read commentary after commentary after commentary. Every single one of them confirmed that opinion. One commentator speaks of a perspective that we're prone to called pious bias, which simply put is the presumption that most people in the Bible are pious. And he says of Esther, here's a woman who's willing to stay in Persia, sleep with a heathen king, rather than to return to Israel and become the wife of a godly Israelite. Esther never prays, and the name of God is never mentioned throughout the book, yet some still wish to make her a model saint. Theirs is a monumental task indeed. When you read the description of Esther, the only attribute that's ever used to describe her is that she was beautiful. That's it. Not that she was noble, not that she was wise, not that she was godly, not that she was anything but beautiful. That's the only attribute. And in fact, it says that she had favor, but the actual verse says she had favor in the eyes of all who saw her. You notice what's missing there? Not the ones who knew her. Interesting. We've tended to read a whole lot more into Esther in the beginning than was there. To really understand it, we have to take our glasses off and look at it through the lens of Scripture. And sometimes an, a, a really important thing to do is to actually contrast what you read with other parts of scripture that are similar. So looking at other Jewish people who were exiled into foreign lands is a really good place to start. You look at Joseph, who is in Egypt, who never, ever lost his uprightness and his Judaism before God. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't eat the food of Babylon. They wouldn't bow to the idols of Babylon. They risked their lives. They went into the fiery furnace rather than do those things. But here we have Esther and Mordecai of a different ilk who seem to be making some really big compromises. Carolyn James says, Esther didn't display the same passionate loyalty to God or to his people. Instead, she shed her Jewish name, concealed her true identity, and morphed into the surrounding culture. I can tell you I have been guilty of pious bias because I saw her in that light before. And if you don't really investigate the story and fully understand what the background is, you actually can miss the most important message of all. And I hope that that's the message we're going to get today because we all start in one place, right? But God brings us into another, us into another one. And that's precisely what he did with Esther. 
but to paint her as something that was really model in the beginning makes us lose part of the importance of the message. So the story in a nutshell was King Xerxes had a big fancy lavish ball that he invited everybody to because he wanted to show off his glory and his possessions for the princes, the attendants, the army officers, the nobles, and the provincial princes. So he invited his wife Vashti, and she refused to come. We don't know why. It doesn't say. There's lots of speculation, but at the end of the day, no one knows. She just said, no, I won't come. And so because he thought she was going to be a bad example to all the women in the kingdom, and how dare he violate, you know, his ego, he decided to depose her. And so a hunt ensued for the most beautiful virgins of the land to establish a new queen. So they were scouted, as you know, and they were brought into the palace. And we don't really know because it doesn't say if they were brought by force or if they were brought voluntarily or if they had any kind of choice in the matter at all. But they came into the palace and for one full year, they got marinated in essential oils in lovely things. I think Donna Daw would probably appreciate this and Patty Jean in the paw, right? Imagine being soaked in all of these extraordinarily, like we love a spa for an hour. This was a year-long spa. I mean, they oozed fragrance out of every pore. Can you imagine how soft their heels were? (laughs) Seriously. This was an incredible thing. So they got soaked and marinated. And at the end of the 12-month period, they would be brought into the king's chamber before marriage for a one-night stand with the king where she had to prove herself over the myriad of other virgins who also had a one-night stand with the king. Esther was just one of many. What a production. I mean, who organized that? Was there a rota list on the harem wall? I think about these things. You know, what night was Esther chosen and then who got to go the next night and how did that all work? Did they feel like, I don't know, how would you feel? Not so much. Take a number and stand in line. In fact, there was also another passage in in Esther 2 verse 19 that I read that kind of blew me away and I did some research on that, but there was actually a second in-gathering of virgins after Esther's marriage to him. So this, this was a big deal. And King Ahasuerus obviously had some issues. All the preparation culminated in this one opportunity to perform so Esther could prove she would make the best choice of a king. So she would entertain him, have sex with him, and prove that she would give him the greatest satisfaction. There just isn't a way to dress this up. I can't make it sound good. I just can't. This is the brass tacks of what it was. She had to prove herself. It's not a very noble way to have to prove yourself to become someone's wife. Carolyn James makes the point that Esther joined the game fully with questionable morals, sleeping with the king before marriage, and then joining herself to a non-Israelite pagan. You have to ask your question of the, yourself the question, if there was such an incredible standard of moral uprightness in her from the get-go, why didn't she make her if I die, I die speech way back when they were herding her into the palace for the year of marination? Why didn't she say, uh-uh, sorry, not going there because A, B, C, and D, and I'm a good girl? Why didn't she do it then? Or why didn't, after the year of preparation, why didn't she say, okay, you know what? I've changed my mind. I have some standards here. I'm not going to do this. If I die, I die. We knew she had it in her to do, but she sure didn't do it in this stage of her life. So that's kind of interesting. And she was also as thick as thieves with Hegai, the king's eunuch who supervised her care and who worked really hard to promote her cause. And she was complicit with everything that he did. Everything that he told her to do, she did. She was out to win the prize. She was all in. 
Reading up on this custom, I discovered that the routine was that each potential queen spent the night with the king, and then the next morning they were placed in a different part of the harem, and if she found favor with him, he would call for her again. And if not, she was relegated to a lonely life in the harem, never being called back. But if she found favor, she would be the one that was recalled and recalled and recalled and eventually would become the queen. It was a process of elimination. Esther excelled. And during this whole time, her cousin Mordecai, who was her father, uncle, cousin, mentor, advised her to keep her Judaism quiet and to keep it a secret, which, of course, she absolutely did because she did everything that he told her to do. Esther didn't just survive. She thrived. Meanwhile, again, contrasted with the rest of Scripture at the same time, back in the Jewish homeland, the prophet Ezra is purifying the people by actually breaking up marriages between Jews and pagans because he was trying to to deflect off of Israel the anger of God against the Israelites who were marrying pagan people against what he had commanded. And then meanwhile, back in Persia, Esther's blowing past everybody to win the contest. Though it could be said that God had a hand in positioning Esther for his purposes, it can't be said that it was because she had such a wonderful fear of the Lord. So we have to be very careful we don't read more into her story than what the story says. This was a real surprise to me, because I had read a whole lot more into the story. Her pagan husband... She dressed like a Persian. She masqueraded like a Persian. She would have daily eaten the food of the Persians. And her pagan king husband never remotely suspected, not even a hint, not a vestige, for five whole years that she was Jewish. He had no idea. She never mentioned who she was, who God was. She was completely silent, and her disguise was convincing. Martin Luther, the great reformationist, actually said he couldn't stand the book of Esther. He said, I wish it didn't even exist because it has so much paganism in it. He felt so strongly about that book. So for five years, she lived as a Persian queen in this luxuriously pagan world, and suddenly everything changes, and we begin to see interesting unfolding of coincidental events where it becomes very clear that the unmentioned God is very much at work. Mordecai, sitting at the gates, uncovers a plot of two assassins that are about to kill the king, and he lets them know, and his good deed is recorded in the king's record books. And then a big problem begins to arise when Mordecai gets on Haman's wrong side. Remember, Haman was the second in command to the king, and he was just completely full of himself. And he demanded that everybody bow to him in honor and respect every time he walked by. And again, ladies, we have to take off our pious bias here. Because sometimes people have thought, well, Mordecai didn't bow to Haman because he was such a good Jew, such an upright Jew. But the fact of the matter is, there's no mention of worship. It wasn't that Haman was demanding worship. He was simply demanding to be honored because he was a big kahuna. And if Mordecai was so upright and determined to have his Judaism stand its ground, then why did he tell Esther to hide it? There's a double standard. And why, when finally he was rewarded for having thwarted the plot of the assassins, why did he allow himself to sit on a horse and be ridden through the streets, applauded and lauded and praised, if he had such an issue with public respect? So it becomes really clear even there that there was some hypocrisy. There was some double standard in Mordecai. There were some definite incongruities. And everything spiraled out of control when Haman, in a rage, decided that he was going to kill Mordecai because Mordecai wasn't paying him the respect he wanted. And then he decided to go a little bit further. Not only am I going to kill Haman, I'm going to kill all the Jews because I hate the Jews. This is a spirit, isn't it? We've seen this through history. We're seeing it even now. 
this ugly thing, he decided that he was going to exterminate the Jews and he managed to get permission from King Xerxes. And it's at this point that Esther finds herself positioned as the only one who can possibly reverse the situation. Lulled by the culture, eyeball deep in luxury, having buried every sense of vestige of Judaism, Esther is asked by Mordecai to do the unthinkable and to save the Jewish people. It's interesting to note that her first answer is no. No, I can't do this. I can't go to the king because I'm not invited and I could surely be killed. And it's interesting, isn't it, that her first thought was not for the welfare of her people, but for her own life. That should be another little clue. Mordecai lets her know the harsh reality. He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape it if all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. And then comes that famous line, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. And that's the demarcation point. That's the tipping point. That's the moment where everything changed for such a time as this. In a world where God appeared to be absent, the reality of his hand became present, became evident. So firstly, his timing and his position was there. You see throughout the story, there's just like this chain reaction of ironic coincidences. Vashti gets deposed. Esther finds favor. Mordecai manages to hear of, a, of an assassination plot. The king ends up having a sleepless night, decides to read the records and realizes that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded. So let's reward Mordecai. On and on and on and on it goes. And you realize that God is at work. Those are just a few of them. And there's an evidence of the positioning of people and the timing and the circumstances. And even though God is not mentioned, he is powerfully at work, orchestrating a victorious rescue of the very people who had chosen not to obey him. Even when they're disobedient, they are still the objects of his love, and he's working out his purposes. Secondly, something in Esther began to change. For the first time in that palace, Esther goes through a transformation that is not cosmetic. Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, says, Esther began to move from being a beauty queen to becoming a Jewish saint, and from being an empty-headed sex symbol to being a passionate intercessor, from the lazy life of the harem to the high-risk venture of speaking for and identifying with God's people. She gets decisive. She takes action. She starts giving orders. She starts ordering Mordecai what to do. The man who had always told her to do, now the tables have turned, and she's telling Mordecai, this is what I want you to do. Go and proclaim a fast. Tell everybody what to do, and and they should pray for me. And if I die, I die. I will go into the king. And Mordecai does what she says. And there's this magnificent metamorphosis in Esther. It's as if she wakes up from a spiritual inertia or a complacency. The idea of being positioned for, for, God, for such a time as this by God seems to be the tipping point for her. Her resolve changes. She accepts that her life is a single, has a single and powerful purpose, and she becomes willing to risk it to accomplish that goal. Going before the king would have been terrifying. And we dilute that because we know the ending is good, right? So we don't camp on the terror part. But it was terrifying. It was like walking the plank. She could have been killed. Look what happened to Vashti for not showing up. And here she's showing up uninvited. She could have been treated just like Queen Vashti. There was precedent for it. And not only that, in her plea, she would be exposing that King Xerxes actually had done a foolish thing in condoning this extermination plot. This would not have looked good for the king as well. So it was an extreme risk she was taking. But something began to happen in her. Something was being pulled out from deep within her. Seeds within her that had long laid dormant had come to life. Something had that had been there was just now beginning to flourish under the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. She displays courage. She displays wisdom. She displays strategic thinking in the way that she executes and, and carries out her plan. She doesn't go into the king all hysterical and emotion, emotional pleading for the Jews. 
She goes in with poise and dignity, and when he extends the scepter, and he does, we know that, she simply invites him to a banquet with Haman. And then she goes to that banquet. She prefers this amazing banquet. And then she invites him to another one. She's very systematic, shrewd, and clearly thinking through this whole thing. She's got a plan, and she knows how she's going to get through it. It's actually a genius plan. And we find out in the end that it's highly effective. And King Xerxes gives to her what she's asking. I love this paragraph that Carolyn writes about Esther. No one looked beneath the surface. No one wondered what gifts God had entrusted to Esther, what vital contributions she was supposed to make. No one engaged her mind, challenged her to think, or counted on her wisdom, insight, and contribution. No one inspired her to look around for opportunities to build God's kingdom. But God wanted more from Esther. He actually put her in a position that compelled her to become a bold, courageous adventurer and to do some rescuing of her own. Esther wasn't an ornament. She was a leading participant in a major event surrounding God's purposes. I'm going to ask Julia Todd to come up for a moment. Um, can you grab me that mic there? Just move the mic right on top. Thanks. Julia, for most of you... Um, most of you, I think, will know Julia Todd. She's married to Peter Todd, who's one of the pastors here um, at Gateway. And um, I just asked Julia to come and share um, with us a little bit. I'm actually going to interview her. Is this on? Uh, yeah? Good. Thumbs up. And um, I'd just like her to tell us a little bit of her story, because most of you will not be able to relate to Esther's life. Yes? Anyone can relate to her life? Not even. But but there's things about her life that I really want to pull out tonight because we're about making these women models for how we can relate and how we can grow and how we can move forward in our lives. So I wanted to just start by asking Julia. Julia told me about um, something that was really in her heart from the age of 25. Do you want to just tell us about what, what that was? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm, I hope this is an encouragement to, to young people as well as um, older people because really this um, passion in me didn't start till I was 25. Um, I, my main passion before then had really been piano and piano teaching. And then I ended up going to Hong Kong for a year and working with a mission there and had the opportunity to learn Cantonese. And I had no idea that my love of a, another language would suddenly erupt out of me. It's quite extraordinary, because you kind of think at 25 you should know what you're doing. And then suddenly, I was supposed to be praying for these guys who were coming off heroin, but I was like, what's the word for house? What's the word for this? You know, I just so loved the language. And I think that was when my love of, of other nations as well, the Chinese people, was birthed. Um, and over the next four years, I spent time back in England studying Mandarin and then back in China um, studying as well and just living cross-culturally um, in a class with people from all over the world who wanted to learn Mandarin, which is, again, a, a wonderful experience. When people come here to learn English, they actually make friends with lots of people from other cultures because they're all learning English. But for us, Mandarin was our language, but it meant that I could make friends with Japanese, with Russians, with anybody. And it was just something that was birthed, but I didn't know what for at that time. Good. So you had um, God birthed in you something that was a passion for other people groups yeah. uh, from this lovely little fair-haired British girl. Uh, it is true. She speaks both Mandarin and Cantonese. It's extraordinary to listen to her. I mean, and actually, I have to say, the, the reason she got me up here is because I'm an orphan and I'm obviously the most beautiful person here. I just thought <laughs> she was racking her brain. There and you thinking, go. It's Julia. It's is Julia <laughs> your pagan name or your Christian name? <laughs> Sounds a bit Greek goddess-ish, right? Anyway, so Julia, you... Um, 
Julia and Peter pastored in the South Congregation for a time, and during that time, she was very much involved in in uh, working with international people as well. And then, when Julia and Peter came to the Panet Road Congregation, well, actually to the King School first, and then got sunk into sort of the, the Panet Road Congregation, um, things kind of died down for you a little bit, didn't they? Um, can you just tell us just a little bit about that season? Yeah, and I, I want to honor, I know there's some people here from the South who were involved in that EAL ministry, and it was a, a wonderful time. So I, I came here, and I just, I had this passion inside me, but it's like I, I couldn't do it anymore, and I didn't quite understand. I mean, I, I felt I had to really focus on home, and the piano teaching was taking a lot of time. But I would sit, and apparently I was asking Mary, did I talk a lot about this? She said, all the time. It was like people would say to me, oh, would you like to do this, and would you like this? And then I'd say, no, 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 I'm going to be working with newcomers. That's what I'm going to be doing. But I wasn't, and I couldn't, and I'd sit here in the church next to Peter thinking, well, what do I do? I I don't really want to be on the worship team. I, I can pray for people. I tried ushering. I'm not very good at taking up money. I don't mind saying hi to people at the front, but there was parts of that that was difficult. And I'm like, Lord, I, I want to be somewhere else. I want to be outside the church. I want to be in a classroom. But I couldn't quite sort of... um focus on what that actually meant. Yep. So, And I can attest to that because I remember... <laughs> trying to help Julia, where do you fit? And she goes, I don't know where I fit. I mean, that was sort of the litany. I just don't know where I fit. And it was, I could see that it was a source of frustration to her. And she would talk about other people groups, but there just seemed to be like a, a stuckness from, from getting involved in that at that time. But that changed this year. So tell us what happened. I have to also, I just want to say something, and I'm going to end also with the, the final part of this. I think for about 40 years, I have struggled with the SAD disorder, the seasonal affective disorder that kicks in normally around the time change and it kicks out again when the time changes again. I know that's quite common for people. And I would dream in the summer and I'd be very creative and have all these ideas and then suddenly uh, it would come and I would sort of have to minimize what I did for six months. So that I was dealing with that issue for six months of the year as well, which meant my capacity was suddenly not able to do things. Um, what was your question? What, what happened this year? So this year, I, I, something extraordinary happened, and it's all about God, and it's all about those God dreams that I believe all of you have, and I think particularly when you hit 50, that's when they're going to get really good. <laughs> I know we always want to raise up the young people, but 50, 60, 70, 80, those are the good years when, you know, you've, you've got so much wisdom. Well, mates and some people have. What anyway. happened this year, Julia? <laughs> <laughs> so this year, Ron sent Peter and I very, like with a short notice to um, a Billy Graham evangelistic conference. And I know that my main gifting is evangelistic. So if I sit through a service, I'm normally sitting through it imagining what this would be like for a non-Christian. And that's just, I think, what God has put inside of me. So I went to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Conference. I'm like, oh, these people are all like me. And, you know, they, they're just full of ideas of, of reaching people outside the church. And I went to this conference or this seminar with a couple called Rick and Patty Love from a church in Calgary. And they shared about, for 10 years, their work amongst newcomers. Absolutely extraordinary what has happened, starting with one class and then another class. Now, after 10 years, there's 300 people every week coming into the church through the week and learning English. And they've got a huge number of volunteers. And then their biggest class is on a Sunday morning. During their services, they have 80 people coming learning English using the Bible. And out of that, heart, third of all their Alpha courses have come now through that English language class. So I was suddenly like, they're doing it. They're doing it. And I went to talk to them. I said, can I come and watch? Can I come and see what you do? Because I, I can't visualize how this can be. They said, sure, come and stay with us and watch the classes. And we will mentor you. 
if you decide to go ahead with this, we will support you. We will Skype you. We have the curriculum. We'll, we'll, you can buy the curriculum and we'll support you through this. And it was like, really, God, is this the time? Is this the time? Um, I came back home. Are you going to ask me another question or no? Um, I, <laughs> I have two minutes left. I came back home and Peter said, Sydney, where are you, Sydney? Sydney's had a dream. And it's about she was helping someone learn another language. And then when they learned it, they began to teach someone else that language. And she's an intern and she needs a project. And we've talked to her about maybe helping you with the EAL class. We were talking today. I think she had that dream while I was in Calgary. Extraordinary. I didn't know her. And we got together and there was this synergy. And I'm like, Lord, are you really providing someone next to me to fulfill this thing that's been inside of me? Someone who's 30 years younger than me and, you know, hasn't got a huge amount of experience in this, but there was a passion. And it's like, I think we can do this. We have the curriculum. We have the mentorship. I have someone. So we decided, well, let's just see if there are any, anybody else wants to do this. We put it out on a Sunday morning and 11 people immediately contacted me. 10 women, I think, and one man. Joyce, Lana, where are you all? Kelly. Yeah, I have one minute left. They came and we, we met together. And, and most of us have never done this before. But there was like this passion. And God was like saying, you know what? Let's do this together. So fast track. There's actually... There's a student over there too, <laughs> Helen. Um, this is our 20th class this week. We've had up to 50 students come through. We run the class on a Sunday morning during the second service because that's when people are free to volunteer. They can come to the first service and they can come into the class. We have five more volunteers now, four men and um, was my math? 12 women, uh, 16 of us that most want to be in the class every week. It's like, and we have up to 15 to 25 students every week. We're just teaching them English because I know they have a dream. They want their lives to be better. They've come here to make a life here. So by God facilitating my dream, I hope he's facilitated a dream for Sydney and the volunteers, but that he's facilitating a dream for these newcomers as well. And my hope is that in the fall, we will start a class where we can use the Bible as well. And we can begin to grow the number of classes and open the doors to people who wouldn't normally come into the church. These people who are coming and not, they don't know the Lord, some of them, but open as many doors as we can to bring people here to, to find him. Maybe they find English first but then they find him. And guess what? First time in 40 years, no seasonal disorder. And it's such a miracle that I keep looking for it. Anyone who's suffered any kind of depression, you, you look, it, you, it's like another person you have to look after. And it was like the Lord took it off me. I don't know if it's going to come back next year, but for this year, I, I don't think I could have done this without this. And I'm so thankful but I wonder whether this has ignited life in me again. And watching, actually watching the volunteers is as much joy to me as watching the students come. And I just thank God, and I talk too much. It's no, good, Julia. I was awesome. I think every one of us who know Julia can say that we have watched her come to life. And to watch, I, I, you know, when I'm not leading worship and I'm, you know, I'm not involved in something, I, I, I try to go into that back hall and peek through the window because it is an extraordinary work of God. And it, and it has to do with, with just this very thing that we've been talking about with Queen Esther, that here was somebody who was kind of languishing. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the analogies aren't, aren't perfectly relatable, but I think this idea that, 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 God has put something in each one of us. And 
He is sovereign. He orchestrates the details of his life, our lives, so that we will walk in the paths that he has created for us, the walking in the works that he has already set before us to walk in. Because he wants to bear fruit through our lives. It's going to be different for every single one of us in this room. For you, it might not be people groups. For Julia, it was people groups. And she has come to life. And not only, you know, it's not just one people group. It's different. You, You see covered women in there. Um, you see people from Slavic countries in there. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's a work of God. And God has been awakening this afresh in her and in Sydney, um, who, who's been just a, a vital part of the, of the pioneering of this project. And I know, I know that it will, it has future. I know that it has within it the very seeds of growth. I know that we will look back on this like we did on Bethlehem Live that first year and we went, you know, we're now, we're now able to say 60,000 people have come through Bethlehem Live. I know that we will say more than 50 have gone through our EAL and we'll be able to say this one and that one were born in her because God is going to utilize these things. So, How do we relate to Esther? I'm so glad she was imperfect in the beginning. And I think if we kept our little rose-colored glasses on and thought she was just such a model young lady at the beginning, we would have missed the point. We would have missed the point completely. That here was a woman who had blended into her culture, who lacked conviction, who lacked purpose, who suddenly was mobilized to a cause because she understood that God had positioned her for such a time as this. And it does have to do with timing, and it does have to do with God's agenda, and it does have to do with God positioning you. Like Esther, we are women who have gifts, strength, wisdom, and understanding that the Lord wants to use. We've been positioned by him uniquely to make an impact in the arena that he places us in. And every single one of you in this room are in a different arena. You you interface with a whole different group of people than the person sitting next to you. And God has a plan. I'm so glad for his mercy to me, even in the midst of the culture that I live in, because I blend really well with the culture. I think there's lots of times as I, as I go to the gym or as I go to the store or as I, as I do anything in the public arena that people don't really, you know, they think, oh, she's got a friendly face because I try. But they might not necessarily know, like Esther. You know, I masquerade around just like everybody else does. And I'm so grateful for this example of God loving the people who were left behind and blending into the culture who didn't stand out. How many of you feel like you don't ever stand out? My hand's up. I'm frustrated with myself for not standing out more than I want to. And I'm so grateful for this. And I know that God has these kinds of moments for every single one of us um, that he wants to pull out of us. He wants to pull out those investments, those gifts. And we're going to pray into that a little bit tonight um, and talk in our groups in a moment. I'm going to ask Cassidy Ann to come up now. And Cassidy Ann, whom we're coming to know well, has done another spoken word. So we have a treat in store right now is she's going to share this with us. Little Jewish girl left out in the cold. With no family to hold, she clings to all she has. A dear cousin in a far-off land, Persia. A land lavished with high temples and gold, she learns the language and takes the customs as her own. And little did the land of Persia know how far this orphan girl would go. Beauty dressed in gold, Hadassah taken from her lowly Persian home to test if she is fit for the king. Months and months of bathing and braiding her hair, given robes of delicate fabric to wear, and it all led up to her laying bare with a man who calls himself king. She is chosen to wear the ring. So she follows the beauty regimens on repeat, all the while being lulled to sleep. She had lost her identity because no one told her who she was. No longer Hadassah, but Queen Esther instead. She had become the very thing her Jewish people dread. A silent queen tethered to a selfish king. 
had all hope been lost? Or deep down inside, could Queen Esther hear her Lord sing? Could she hear the great I am whispering that there will soon be freedom in her land? And could she feel him take her by the hand and teach her how to love recklessly in a land who has never known love outrageously? And in her tower high, you can hear her heart cry out. My people have been targeted. My king's heart oblivious and hardened to the genocide looming overhead. I cannot let my people's blood run red down the streets. All my life I have known only how to be peaceful and quiet. Yet now I must rise up to injustice and with God's help fight it. So Queen Esther left her robes gleaming and clean to become once more a darling Jewish girl on her knees. As the king's advisor turned cruel with an agenda evil to the core, God called Esther to more. More grace and more courage. The queen had a choice and she chose love. As she was confronted with death, death, Esther chose to trade her possible last breath for a meeting with the king. No ring or sweet words to save her now. The truest, truest call a woman could hold. To step off the throne and love recklessly. To cry out and save her people. No, she was not the Lord's second choice. She had given Esther a voice for such a time as this. This was her shining moment. This was all of God's heart and she was called to hold it. To hold it up for her husband, the king, to see. So slowly but bravely, Queen Esther, Hadassah, the Jewish refugee, cousin Mordecai's baby, entered the throne room. And with one lift of the king's scepter, Esther knew that God was a God of his word through and through. Thank you so much. What a gift you have for such a time as this, Cassidy Ann. I think God's going to take you into arenas that you don't have a clue yet what it's going to be. It's going to be amazing. It's going to touch people very powerfully. And this is the whole point, right? We are Azares. God raised up Esther to be an Azare to a pagan king who ran 127 provinces between India and Sudan. How did she help him? She helped him by not allowing him to annihilate the apple of God's eye. Woe would it have been unto him had he done so. That would not have gone over well with God. So she became an Azer to the king of Persia. She became an Azer to cousin Mordecai, who had always told her what to do, but now she was lifting Mordecai. She became an Azer to the entire Jewish world in Persia, all the people that had disobeyed God and not gone home. She spared their lives because of what she did. She became a rescuer. This woman who was once passive became a spiritual leader to the men. In her sphere and in her life, there was no whitewashing of her leadership. She was brave, she was wise, she was skillful, and she rescued thousands. And it was God who put her in that place. It was God himself who values and blesses us and wants each one of us to be an Azer, to lift and to rescue others.